So welcome. Thank you guys so much. Uh, Jesus Ethics, here we go. Uh, The title of tonight's sermon is Turn, Let, Go. Not this, let it go, but turn, let, and go. So join with me um, as we take a moment to um, pray and we'll get started into our sermon. Father, we bless you, God, for the way in which you um, lived and taught among us. Jesus in flesh, the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us. God, and teaching us how to live. So as we dive into your word and try to understand the words that you spoke uh, near 2,000 years ago and the words that you are still speaking to us today, we pray, Jesus, that you would open up our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes to see. Move us, Jesus, tonight as we are your disciples and we'd like to learn from you. Help us to sit at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn, let, go. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. The very words of God. What is Jesus saying here? What is he teaching? And so we're going to try to unpack each of these lines. Now, these phrasings have become incredibly common in Christian community. Um, We kind of might even toss them um, out at one another occasionally. Like, well, you know, you really should turn the other cheek. What? Okay, thank you. What does that mean? I I have four cheeks. Which one do you want me to turn? (laughs) So, you know, you have that question in your head, perhaps. Um, you might, (laughs) one of our members, and I won't call him out right now, but he has a running, um, file on his phone entitled things I can't believe my pastor said. And I think I just added to the file. So, um, it was not my intention, but there we go. So, uh, we're going to try to unpack this a little bit and understand what it is that Jesus is saying and how that impacts us so that we stop tossing these verses around like two by fours and trying to smack people upside the head with it. Amen? So let's try to understand what it is. Now, just as a caveat and introduction, most of what I'm going to be teaching you on today comes from the work of Dr. Walter Wink of Blessed Memory, passed away two years ago, a theologian, uh, Masters of Divinity, PhD, and he wrote a book entitled Jesus and Nonviolence, A Third Way. It's a beautiful, short, little book. It's easily accessible. It's kind of pocket-sized, and it's incredibly thought-provoking. But we're going to go through it, essentially, tonight in in some form or fashion, so you can read it at your leisure. But tonight, we'll kind of try to move through it a little bit and understand what Jesus is saying. So let's start with verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, Jesus is saying this in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, where he's sitting with his disciples, but also, if you'll remember back in Matthew chapter 5 and the end of chapter 4, a large crowd that is following him from all over. So there are Jews there and Gentiles, Romans, um, everybody in between, rich and poor, all of them there at the Sermon on the Mount listening. And he turns to his disciples and he begins to teach. And people are starting to lean in and listen. He says, you've heard it said. Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, what's he quoting there? Well, he's quoting Exodus 21, and it also appears in Leviticus and also appears in Deuteronomy. This law comes three different times. 
And it says in Exodus 21, verse 23 through 25, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So when Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, he's referring to text. He's quoting Torah. He's pulling out Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And he's not tossing it out but he's going to expand upon it and explain the intentionality of that verse. Now, that didn't mean, as some have interpreted or understood or misunderstood, that there were a whole bunch of people going around lopping off hands and eyes and teeth. Instead, it meant that there were people in the world that as injury happened, they had a tendency to respond 10 times. You know, it's like the person who stands on the street corner with their foot out like this, just daring you to step on it, you know, and then when you step on it by accident, they just freak out on you. It's not an equal retaliation. Um, We even have some of this mindset still in operation in our world today. Don't you want to get even? And then sometimes don't you want to say, but yours was worse because you started it. So, you know, you kind of really, really want to get even. When I was a kid, my sister, um, she's two years younger than me, um, and we were little. She's gotten over this behavior now, but she used to bite me, right? Now, I'm two years older, and I got really angry because she was never getting in trouble, and she would bite me. My mom would just say, you know, be careful, and she's your little sister and things like that. So what I did was I hid under the desk in my parents' den, and I bit my own arm so I could get really good teeth marks, proof positive that my sister had bit me. And then I went to my mother and I said, look, see, I have proof. She bit me. She's in, now get her in trouble. Now, brilliant as I am, neglected to remember the teeth count between two and four. Significantly a different bite. Yeah. So I have a huge bite on my arm that is clearly made only by myself. And I'm trying to bust my sister. And my mom, she's brilliant. And she had a, you know, she was just in the moment, in the zone. And she bent down and looked at me in the kitchen with our 70s wallpaper. And she said, Danielle, did Nicole really bite your arm? And at that point, I'm like, I think, I think I've been had. And I, I said, well, no, but she does it all the time. She's not getting in trouble. And she needs to get in trouble. Like, I, I needed justice. And my mom said, why did you do that? <laughs> you know, bite your own arm to this extent. And I was like, I wanted to teach her a lesson. And my mom goes, well, Danielle, God teaches lessons. You don't get to teach lessons. I was like, dang. So not only did I lie, but I stepped on God's toes. I'm in serious trouble. Like, I remember feeling like I'd encroached on God territory. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll back out. I'm sorry about that. When we get hurt, we're looking for revenge often. We want to blame somebody. We want things to somehow be made right. And what God does when he sets this law forth in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy is he says, okay, okay, keep it even. It's not, you poked my eye, so I'm going to poke yours. It's, you poked my eye, I don't get to now kill your family in response. I have to keep it even. Now, there's even this concept which is unfortunately even informing part of what is happening right now in the Middle East. Um, and the conflict between Israel and Palestine. It started with, with three Israeli boys who were kidnapped and murdered. And then in retaliation, extremists kidnapped and killed an Arab boy. Now we have a conflict. Now, there's been a conflict. This isn't the only reason for the conflict. This is long history. Read your Bible. But you can see how things have accelerated And it added fuel to a fire that was already burning. And now we have rockets flying and people, innocents, on both sides, um, 
paying the price of that behavior of extremists and radicals, a minority. We see that there are reasons why God placed this, this type of calm down into three of our books of the Torah. So when we look at that moment, when you've heard it said, this is what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to that passage. The next line, he says this, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. At which point, every one of us in the room should be like, huh? Why wouldn't I resist an evil person? Particularly since most of us are even raised and taught, you know, bind that, it's evil, flee from it, it's evil, you know, all of those kinds of things. But Jesus says, don't resist an evil person. Why, why would he say such a thing? What does he mean by this? Well, there's two most common responses to evil, aren't there? Fight and flight and fight. You either passively receive the evil upon yourself, you submit to it, or you are violently opposed to the evil and you fight it. These are the two most common responses that humanity has when something bad happens. In fact, we'll tell our kids, okay, there's a bully on the playground. You have two choices. Run, you know, sort of take it and run, get to the teacher, or fight. And it depends on the parents sometimes and the situation as to which one we want them to do. When Jesus says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person, the word there in Greek for resist not evil is antistenai, which means against, and then the second portion of that word is violent or armed rebellion. Essentially what he's saying is don't strike back at evil in kind. It's not don't resist evil. Don't resist an evil person. Just lie down under this or run away from it. But instead, when we look at the Greek, the word that's used there is for the evil, for the fight there, is this kind of armed rebellion that implies a lethality and a violence to it. So Jesus says, don't resist that with the same thing. So the two most common responses to evil that we find in our world, passivity, submission, flight, or fight, violent opposition and revenge, Jesus seems to not want either of those two. Instead, he's going to suggest a third way. The way of Jesus is disciplined nonviolence. And this is radical. If evil, evil is now being opposed, but without being mirrored. So the disciples of Jesus are being taught, you can resist this, But you're not going to do it in the same way that the world is doing it. And in Jesus' day, everyone was very clear of those two responses. There was the Essene community who had, you know, they were fleeing the violence. And some of them also really, they have a war scroll, preparing, the Dead Sea Scroll community, preparing to go back and fight. We have the Zealot community in Israel in Jesus' day who are ready to fight, who are bringing swords with them as they walk down the streets in Jerusalem to take out the powers that be. And Jesus is not going to pick either of those two. He's going to suggest a third way. Now, Jesus' way is very, very difficult. So if you think this is going to be easy, all of us disciples of Jesus, we're unpacking these couple of verses tonight, just strap in. I'm letting you know it's going to be really hard. When we desire nonviolence, we want to avoid struggle and conflict. Anybody ever want to avoid struggle and conflict? 
Anybody? Really? I mean, how many marriages are on the rocks because people are avoiding struggle and conflict, and they won't want to engage? Now, Christians particularly, because we have this cultural of niceness, right? Like if there are four Christians that line up at a four-way stop, no one's ever going to go. So no, no, you go, you go. No, it's okay. No, really, no. Jesus loves you more. You know, let's go. Um, maybe sometime you'll have somebody who goes, well, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. Maybe occasionally you'll get a Christian up there. But most of the time, we have this culture of niceness, and we don't want the conflict. And particularly as Americans, no, I'm sorry, no, my fault. I mean, all of this. We don't like the struggle. We don't like the conflict. We often want the system to change. Christians, do you want the systems to change? There are lots of systems that we look at in our world, and we look at in our homes where we go, that is unjust, and it must change. But I don't really want to do the work of changing it. Jesus' way is going to require us to do work. It is disciplined, militant discipline, it's commitment to his way, to this way of nonviolence. Now, the church often sees conflict, and it wants the lion and the lamb to lie down together, right? Just kind of control. But when the church says, lie down together, the lion then replies, first, let me finish my lunch. Now, what happens oftentimes when the church sees conflict, right? And you can see in the second panel here that Lion had a very tasty lunch. You know, as we say, let's negotiate some, let's just all get along. Can't we all just get along? Let's just all sing kumbaya. That will sort it all out. Um, You know, Congress can join hands, Republican, Democrat, and sing, we shall overcome, rocking back and forth awkwardly. Somehow, this will all sort it through. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not a phony peace. It's not a pretend, feel-good kind of moment. Let's just let lions and lambs lay down together. I'm sure it'll all work out. Instead, Jesus goes, no, that lion is hungry, and it's going to eat that lamb. And Jesus is going to choose the side of justice. And we as his disciples have that requirement as well. He is not wanting us to be a doormat. He doesn't want us just to lie down and say everything is okay. If justice is the goal... Conflict and resistance may be necessary to force those in power to change. I mean, the civil rights movement in the United States is the perfect example of that. If the civil rights movement had said, let's avoid struggle and let's avoid conflict, we would not have seen the strides that came forward as a result of courageous students, of people who were saying, I really want to be part of this movement that makes things right. Are we strapped in? We're ready for the third way. Now, after Jesus has given us all of that, he's going to give us three examples of how to do this. Three examples in his world, how to make it work. So verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, this is great, right? Just keep calm and turn the other cheek. Well, I don't think that sounds very good. Anyone really excited about somebody hitting you on one cheek and you're just calmly going, oh, that was great. Can you do it again? So I'm going to ask Pastor Kevin to come on up here, and he is going to explain to us a little bit of what Jesus is teaching, and he's got a companion to help. Excellent. Abraham has been lots of trouble, so I'm, I'm glad you've pulled him up here. We can get him in line. Okay. One of the 
ideas or the thinking behind turning the other cheek is, again, passivity. The idea that turning the other cheek just simply means that you're a doormat. When somebody does you wrong, you're just supposed to. And I've heard Christians say this. I've heard pastors say this. Sit there and take it because that's the Jesus way. As we've talked about before, you keep using that phrase. I do not think it means what you may think it actually means. That harkens back to a series we did a while ago. I just love Inigo Montoya. Okay. Now, a backhanded slap. This is going to be really important for what we're going to talk about. A backhanded slap. I'll hold him down. I'll hold him down. <laughs> I just told Abraham, I said, I need you. He did, I didn't tell him what I needed him for. <laughs> a backhanded slap was the normal way of admonishing inferiors. So a master backhands a slave, a husband, wife, etc., etc. There's two things that are going on. Not only backhanding, but which hand do you use? Now, in some cultures, even to this day, as well as in ancient cultures, you used your left hand because of sanitary reasons for sanitary purposes. So all of your gesturing or all of your social cues would be done with your right hand, shaking of hands, all these different things would be done with the right hand, waving at people would be done with the right hand. Engagement from a social practice would be done with the right hand. The left hand is considered an offense. Again, part, part of that comes from sanitary history and that even exists in some cultures to get today. We see this in the Mishnah, which is part of Jewish literature. Uh, four zoos was the... F- fine for a blow to appear with a fist. 400 zoos was the fine for backhanding him, but to an underling, no penalty whatsoever. So here's what we're going to do. Abraham, you, (laughs) you ready? You are going to use your right hand. Now, Jesus says very specifically, if somebody strikes you on the Right cheek. It's very specific. If somebody slaps you or hits you on the right cheek. Now, which hand are you allowed to use according to cultural convention? Your right hand. So, hit me on my right cheek with your right hand. Uh, Are you sure? Well, don't... (laughs) Don't actually hit me, but how would it go? Okay, so that's one way of doing it. What's the implied way, given the context of everything that we've talked about and everything that we've seen? (laughs) It's a backhand. So if I'm being hit by somebody, according to these cultural conventions, on my right cheek, it is instantly assumed that that person is backhanding me. Which means that this person who's trying to offend me or trying to put me in my place is treating me like an inferior. So when Jesus says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now what's going to have to happen in order for you to strike me according to these cultural conventions? What happens if you try to backhand me? You're going to hit my face, which is awkward. The only option that you have now is to strike me appropriately close-fisted in this direction, which then forces this person, according to everything that we've read from the mission and culture, to now see me as an equal. Isn't this brilliant? This is brilliant. So the action of turning the other cheek robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate the person that
that he is trying to oppress. The person who turns the other cheek is saying, try again, your first blow failed to achieve its intended effect. I deny you the power to humiliate me. I am a human being just like you. Your status does not alter that fact. You cannot demean me. That's turn the other cheek. Thank you. Good game, good game. So turning the other cheek does not mean be good. That is not what it means. It, it doesn't mean, I mean, I, just doing a quick image search, turn the other cheek, and this guy's like, you know, be good. That's what you tell your kids. Hey, you know, I know that kid was mean to you, but turn the other cheek. That's not what Jesus is saying. Hey, that's not a bad value, finding a way to generously respond, finding a way to be kind. That's okay. But that's not what he's saying here. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek and let him strike that also, he is saying, demand your humanity. Demand your dignity. Demand that they treat you as a human being equal to themselves. And it is completely subversive and changes it all. If you can imagine... That's happening between a, an owner and a slave, between a Roman and a Jew, between a husband and a wife, between a parent and a child. If the child then, or the, the servant, or whomever it is, turns the other cheek, this is completely unexpected. It's not what the person was expecting at all. They're intending violence to be the end of the story. They're intending their force to shut you up. They're intending their force to stop what you're doing. And instead, you let their force be responded to with dignity and humility and humanity. And you cause a problem for them. All right, let's look at the other thing. So Jesus' act of turning the other cheek is an act of defiance. Let's look at this next verse in chapter, in verse 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. Well, where is this coming from? This is coming from Exodus 22, verses 25 through 27, which reads, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? And when they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And then the next passage in Deuteronomy 24, verses 10 through 13, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to fetch his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he's a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall restore to him the pledge that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. This is the law. In Jesus's day. And notice the dignity that is in both of those verses. In Exodus, it says that they will cry out, that God will hear, that God will be compassionate towards them. And in this one, you can't just walk into that guy's house and act like you own him. You stand outside and you wait for him to bring it to you. So in Jesus's day, people are wearing a cloak and then a tunic, an undergarment of a robe. And it's a little bit like this. I'm going to have a couple more volunteers come on up. Uh, Mr. Jack Primeth and uh, Mom Jen Primeth. So, uh, Jen, you can stand here, and Jack, you can stand over here. Now, Jen um, is very wealthy, and this is why we're friends. I'm just joking. Uh, Jen is a wealthy landowner in Jesus' day, and I'm a judge, and I'm going to help mediate this dispute. Jack 
owes Jen a ton of money. This is true, actually. No, I'm just joking, Jack. But you shall be indebted to her for the rest of your life. Okay, for all sorts of good, good reasons. But will then somebody will be indebted to you? It's all right. Okay, so Jen is a wealthy landowner, and poor Jack, the only way that he has ever been able to live was he had some ancestral land, but he got into debt. Life got hard. He had to take out some loans, and you didn't have anything else to give, so you ended up having to sell your land. You've got no place to live. Now that's horrible. I mean, such a shame, so humiliating, deeply, desperately poor. He's lost his family's land. He's got nothing but the cloak that's on his back. So Jen's going to come to the judge, and, you know, every morning, Jack is going to come and give us, I'm going to mediate it because I'm the judge, his cloak. So Jack, I'm sorry, come on in. We know you're deeply poor, and um, hey, could you hurry it up? Because we got tea time. We're uh, hanging out, and um, we were at that party last night with the Johnsons. Fantastic. So amazing. I mean, they're so well connected. So thank you. Yeah. Hurry, hurry, hurry. We got important things to do. Thanks so much. Okay, great. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, you can come back at the end of the day and, and get that, and, um, and we'll give it back to you. So, um, great. Thanks. You Go ahead. Go on, on your day. Uh, Jack. So, okay, so anyway, we're just hanging out, and we're talking about what we're going to do and life, and then Jack starts to, uh, no, you, just this. We only need this, and uh, you're just going to, uh, do you know what's happening here? I don't really do now, okay, because this is all we're allowed to take from you, so we're just going to take this cloak, and then Jack proceeds to disrobe and takes it all off. Here we go, Jack. <laughs> Now, at this point, we are going to start getting embarrassed. What's your problem? Listen, people are going to talk. You know, wait, no, 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 no. Really? No, seriously, I mean, it's just, just the uh, cloak. You know, that's all we need to know. And he's like, take my tunic as well. Who is ashamed now? Who's ashamed now? We'll let him not have to disrobe all the way. But you can imagine what is happening We had power. We're throwing our power in your face. And you walk in and you're like, fine. I'm going to take control of what's going to happen to me next. And I will take it all off. Now, when Jack walks out into the community and somebody says, hey, why are you naked? What's Jack going to say? They took all my clothes. Now, this, thank you, Jack. Excellent job. You can go. Shoes and all. Woo, thank you so much, Jen. Jesus has this person start to take the power back. Now, they're abiding by the law of the day. They're not breaking the law, and nor is the wealthy landowner or the judge. This is the law. They're in debt to you. You can take their clothing and hold it for the day. Now, the humiliation is he's have to come back at the end of the day and come and get the pledge, the cloak back, and then the next morning he's going to come give it to us again for the day. And everyone's going to see him walking around without his cloak and knowing that he's in debt. We've robbed him of humility, of, of any of the dignity that he could have in the community, but he starts to pull it back. Now, the people were so heavily taxed in Jesus' day, some scholars suggesting up to 80 to 90 percent, that when the Jewish rebellion happened in 66 CE, the first act of the revolutionaries was to go into the temple treasury where the records were kept and burn them. Can you imagine every time you're going to go and worship God that the record of your debt is kept there? So Jesus is, in effect, sponsoring clowning. 
He is saying, start to make a joke out of it. People in power stand on their dignity, and nothing deflates them past, faster than deft lampooning. Do you all know who this is? This is Bassem Youssef. He is referred to as the Egyptian John Stewart. Bassem Youssef is now presently off the air because the Egyptian government has made it illegal for him to continue his job, lampooning, just like John Stewart does of The Daily Show, the political events of his day. And here's a clip with him and John Stewart speaking about this instance and what's been happening. I want to ask you, so, so you, you have these accolades uh, from Time magazine, from America, from really around the world, uh, in Egypt they love you. Does this help you with the Egyptian government that now wants to arrest you and silence you and do all these things? Does it make them angrier to see how popular you've become? It does make them angrier. It does yeah. make them angrier. Yeah. Well, here, here, here's the thing. You know, all around the world, there are, like, activists, journalists, uh, uh, TV anchor being incarcerated and, and, and hunted out for their uh, opinion. But you know what? Once you go after a joker, this yeah. is like, seriously, you can't take a joke? I mean, seriously? I mean, you, you don't have... I know that you don't have a, a sense of humor, but, like, you do have to be a sore loser, you know? So it's... Uh, uh, <laughs> so, so here it is. They, 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 they think that they can get away by their own agenda, and, and they will tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a democracy. You can say what you want, but do it. Be polite. Yes. Be, be, be nice. Be, be presentable. It's like, what is that? Right. <laughs> is it the idea, too, that they don't understand that by going after someone who is teasing them, that is not a projection of power and strength? Great weakness. It, it, great weakness and weakness. insecurity. A very surprising move. They are insecure. They are locked up into their teenage years. I mean, they are... They're, <laughs> They, 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 they had still have pimples and they have to deal with their, I don't know, bodily hair. It's sure, like a, a, no, I understand. <laughs> yeah. We've all been there, Bassem. Yeah, We've yeah. all been there. I know. So Bassem Youssef, that's fantastic. He's wonderful. If you can find the uh, Arabic translations on YouTube of his program, it's pretty incredible. He was a physician and um, saw a need for this type of truth-telling, this type of prophetic telling inside of his community. What happens with this lampooning is that the poor man accepts the laws as they stand but pushes them to the point of absurdity and reveals them for what they really are. He strips nude, walks out before his compatriots, leaves the creditor and the whole economic edifice he represents stark naked. He's flipped it all again. Jesus has given the power back to the person who has, is now naked, completely exposed, but somehow that person is the most powerful person now in the equation. And if you ever want to know how to gain some influence using humor, finding the court jester, finding those who can speak truth to power with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, those people are powerful. And they are making great influence, so powerful that the Egyptian government set out to arrest and take away this man's hilarious show because they knew the power of the joke. But you heard Jon Stewart say, don't they understand that this exposes how weak they are? You see how it's still something that Je Jesus' teachings, man, they are timeless. Okay, if anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go two miles. Now, throughout all of, 
all of Israel. There are mile markers, Roman mile markers, every single mile. And so you, you can't see them all today, but they were there during that time. And the Roman soldiers were allowed by law to ask any Jew or any person in any occupying country where they were occupying the people, they could ask them to go one mile with them. Now, by Roman law, they were not permitted to ask them to go two miles. Because Rome has this thing they called Pax Romana. They like to keep the peace. It's not really a peace. Um, the, the lion is very satiated. He's eaten well. But instead, they are going to say, keep it down. Just keep the people nice. But you can expo- exploit them a little bit. So I'm going to ask two more volunteers up here. I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Mark and uh, Martina to come on up. You'll find her great. Okay. Now, the Roman pack was between 65 and 85 pounds. And the Roman could just come upon any person and say this. Hey, Bruno Mars. Put the sign you're carrying me up to that mark right there. Okay? Got it? Okay. Now, she doesn't have a choice. She has to do this. She can't even get it on. 65 to 85 pounds. Right? She, yeah. Now, this is a strapping young man who clearly can carry his own pack. But this is about power, and it's about humiliation, and it's about the fact that he doesn't want to carry it, and he simply can do this. Now, they get to the one-mile marker, and this is what Jesus tells her to do. Okay, I need my pack back. No, 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 I need my pack back. No, you're going to get me in trouble if you don't give me my pack back. (laughs) Now, she keeps walking with it. He's in trouble. Thank you guys very much. She doesn't know. He doesn't know what to do. This is not in the basic training manual. Most people are going to whine and complain and say, how is it? I can't believe this guy's making me care. Look at this is so unjust. We're all going to look at that situation and go, why would he pick on that cute little girl? But instead, she said, I'm going to keep the power. No, no, I, I got it. Let's go. Oh, you want it? <laughs> no, I'm going to go with you. Are you in trouble? Are you in trouble? Oh, okay, I'm going to keep going. You want your, no, no, it's mine now. Now, is she, what's she doing? Is she being kind? Is she playing keep away? Is she trying to get him busted? We don't know. He can't tell. This isn't in the training manual. We don't understand. We know that after the mile, she's supposed to give it back. And Jesus says, flip it. You take control. So how can the oppressed recover the initiative and assert their human dignity even during a situation that cannot be changed? Caesar's in charge. This is the law. One person's not going to change this. This is the way it works. This is the world they live in. The rules are Caesar's, but the way we respond to the rules, that belongs to God. Caesar does not have any power over that. This is where the power comes back in. And this is that radical, disciplined, nonviolent approach. Not taking up arms of revolution and not passively just being a doormat and going, okay, fine. But instead, and this is key, the, the issue of nonviolence is not the final objective. The final objective is humanity. It's life. It is change for the oppressor as well. He is now being, the oppressor, the enemy, is now being shamed. Their own lack of humanity is now being exposed. They have been taking their power and saying, let me shove it into your face and saying, you are not human. You don't deserve dignity. But in that moment, their own lack of dignity, their own lack of humanity is being exposed to the world. And this is how we love our enemies. 
It does them no good to simply link arms and sing kumbaya and pretend it's okay what they're doing. It does us no good to do that. It simply doesn't work. The third way is the best way, the Jesus way. Mandela said this, for to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. This is how the world changes with Jesus' teachings. It's not passivity. It's not running away. It's not flight, and it's not fight. It's a third way. Jesus' third way teaches us to do this. Seize the moral initiative. If something's coming your way, you take the initiative first. You take the moral high ground. Find a creative alternative to violence. Assert your own humanity and dignity as a person. Meet force with ridicule or humor. Break the cycle of humiliation. Refuse to submit or accept the inferior position and expose the injustice of the system. Take control of the power dynamic. Everything starts to switch and flip. Jesus' kingdom runs upside down. By the way, anyone have a boss that's just been super difficult to work with? (laughs) Put your hand down, Pastor Mark. How do you deal with that? The rules are the rules. They're difficult. How do you flip the power dynamic? How do you maintain your dignity in that moment? Have you had a family member, a family system, a a law situation where it's just simply unjust what's been happening? How do we flip those things as Jesus' disciples? You see, Jesus' third way forces the powers to make decisions for which they're not prepared. They haven't thought about this. This is where the creativity comes in. Jesus' third way helps us recognize our own power. We're not doormats. We are people. We have humanity. We can lead into this moment. And you know what? If we're going to pick Jesus' third way, we have to be willing to suffer rather than retaliate. And that is exactly how the civil rights movement changed America. Because those students that went in Nashville and desegregated those lunch counters and desegregated those restaurants, they were willing to suffer rather than retaliate. They practiced it. This is the radical discipline. They practiced for months being insulted. being beat. They practiced having people beat on them so that when they sat at that lunch counter, they wouldn't retaliate that their suffering would be greater. They signed up knowing that that day they were likely to be beaten and arrested. They chose suffering instead of retaliation, and the Jesus way worked. They have to be willing to undergo the penalty for breaking unjust laws. They all said, fine, okay, arrest me. And they were ready with the phone numbers and ready to call the lawyers and ready to call the ambulances. And it's, if you ever watch how they desegregated those lunch counters, it is systematic, disciplined, beautiful work. It is brilliant. This way of Jesus is brilliant. It's creative. It's incredible. And it brings huge change for everyone, including the oppressors. We have to die to fear of the old order and its rules. This is a hard thing. Can you imagine, just for a moment, close your eyes and imagine saying, I will go desegregate that lunch counter. What's your immediate fear? Because I'll tell you mine. My fear is that my heart has gone far ahead of my flesh and that I'm not going to be able to handle it. We have to be willing to let that fear go and decide that living with the injustice is the thing that we're more afraid of. 
This is not an avoidance of violence, but it's a creative struggle to restore the humanity of everyone. This is the Jesus way. This is the third way. Notice this beautiful graphic Kevin pulled together. It's not what you've thought. It's not the two ways that we just normally go to, fight or flight. There's another way that doesn't require you to deny the truth, to deny your own humanity. Jesus' way is best. May we, as his followers, be infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, be brought together into community to creatively and systemically think and practice the Jesus way in our communities that we might begin to see the way of Jesus come to life, his kingdom to be built in our midst. Amen? Amen.